welcome. Back. Good to see you all. So, okay. So welcome everyone. Um, tonight we're going to continue to just review a little bit our exploration of compassion, karuna. And I want to offer some further teachings on how we can approach the difficult emotions that arise in our practice with compassion. That's just going to be for like the first quarter of the talk and then the final three quarters, the bigger chunk, will be moving on to the third Brahma Vihara of mudita or joy. So in each of these talks we'll kind of harvest what we've been practicing for the day and then really launch us in the new, the next Brahma Vihara that we're exploring. So Donald spoke so beautifully about the way compassion is this movement toward pain, which is uh, exactly the opposite of, of how we're wired to be in relation to unpleasant. So this compassion is the willingness to be with what's uncomfortable and painful, to open to the pain, to actually, um, in order to relieve to relieve it, we, we are willing to be with it because that's how we can um, ease it and relieve it. This is a quote from John Wellwood from his book, Ordinary Magic. The heart itself cannot break, for its very nature is soft and open. What breaks open when we see things as they are is the protective shell of ego identity we have built around ourselves in order to avoid feeling pain. When the heart breaks out of this shell, we feel quite raw and vulnerable. Yet that's also the beginning of feeling real compassion for ourselves and others. So he's speaking to this need to get out of our comfort zone, which is our protection that keeps us from feeling. And this is Mingyur Rinpoche, who says, happiness depends on choosing between opening to our discomfort in encountering afflictions versus being ruled by them. So it's a bit counterintuitive that by turning towards suffering, we will find happiness. But that's really what it is. We can only 
come to the end of our afflictions, if we go through the discomfort of encountering them, not if we try to get around them. And then one last pithy quote from Lama John McCransky. He says, the root of all fear is the fear of our strong emotions. That what drives all of our fear is this fear of touching what we find so painful. But if we're willing to be with those strong emotions, we touch that we actually have the capacity to be with them and that they don't have to control us. And then we realize we don't have to be afraid of anything because we can meet any moment, whatever the emotion that arises. So I'd like to offer some steps tonight that go into detail about how we concretely hang out with our strong and painful emotions. We've been talking about this quite a bit in the retreat about when difficult emotions arise, if they're sticky, if they're intense, if they really are hooking us, then we stop the metta or the karuna and we go to mindfulness, we address what's happening. And so I want to take us through some steps for how we might actually do that in a, in a really methodical way. So many of you may be familiar with the RAIN uh, acronym uh, from Tara Brock, well, from many teachers, but Tara Brock has really popularized it. I'm not going to go through that acronym. I'm going to teach you one that's quite similar, but it comes from Thich Nhat Hanh. RAINS, the acronyms, the R is for recognize, the A is for embrace, or uh, A, excuse me, is for accept, the I is for investigate, and the N is for nurture, um, just so you know what that stands for. But this is something else. It doesn't make a beautiful word <laughs> like RAIN, but it's five steps. And uh, it, it's helpful to uh, have as a framework that in Buddhist psychology, there are two levels of, of the mind that are spoken of. Um, and a lower level that's called store consciousness and an upper level that's called mind consciousness. And I've prepared a couple slides to help um, illustrate this. So, um, Onyx, if you have the slides available, we can pull up the first, the first slide, which just has the two layers. Um, thank you. So, so the store consciousness is called store consciousness because it, its function is to store the seeds. The seeds are 
potentialities of every mind state. And so when we did the self-compassion practice this afternoon, we were saying, when I feel suffering, I know that this is a human thing that other humans also experience. And, and that's these seeds. There are said to be 51 in some traditions, 52 of these seeds. And everyone has all the seeds. There are wholesome seeds. There are unwholesome seeds. There are seeds that are indeterminate. We all have all the seeds. We all have the potential to be awakened. We all have the seed of mindfulness down in our store consciousness. We all have the seed of joy. Uh, we all have the seed of hatred, of violence, of deceit, of jealousy. We all have the seed of forgiveness, of generosity. We all have all the seeds. So that's what it means to be human is we get all these potentialities in our store consciousness. When a seed is watered, it comes up into our mind consciousness. And at that point, it is the energy, it's the mental state, and it's awakened, it's woken up. When it's asleep, it's the seed. So we, we are here at the retreat, maybe our seed of, of um, you know, speaking badly about someone else, judging. That's not getting watered. We're practicing silence, we're practicing metta, compassion. Uh, maybe our seed of, of mindfulness, our seed of kindness is getting watered, and that's what's coming up into the mind, and the feeling, the energy of kindness becomes alive in us. It wakes up. So if you could show the next slide, Onyx. Of, yeah, so this shows a seed has woken up, and it's entered into mind, mind consciousness, and then we have an active emotion happening. So let's say it's a difficult emotion that's um, woken up, like anger or fear or sadness. It was below, sleeping, and then something happened. We took something in through our mind consciousness. We remembered something, and that seed awoke. And then we felt anger, and then anger was creating a hormonal change, a chemical change in our blood. We felt we could feel you know, heat, tension, many thoughts that were, you know, produced from the emotion of anger. So then we're, we have an actual situation of anger. One other way to think about this is that the store consciousness is like the basement where all these things stay in their sleeping state. And the mind consciousness is like the living room. So suddenly when anger is woken up, we have a visitor in the living room. And depending on who the visitor is, it can make our living room very pleasant and cozy or very unpleasant and um, uncomfortable. So the five steps when a difficult emotion arises in mind consciousness are the first thing we want to do is to recognize that a painful emotion is present. So similar to the R in RAIN, the first step in this series uh, that Thich Nhat Hanh teaches is recognize with mindfulness. So mindfulness is the energy that recognizes this painful emotion. Um, so as soon as a, a suffering state comes up, 
we want to have mindfulness come up also because it's mindfulness that helps us see, oh, I'm suffering. There's some pain here. So this is the, the last slide, um, Onyx. So this is mindfulness coming up, recognizing that there's a, a visitor in the living room that is in pain that's causing also pain. And mindfulness is inherently kind. It's willing to see what's here without judgment. So if anger arises, mindfulness says, oh, hello, anger, I see that you're here. So in this case, we, we have adult supervision in the living room. We don't leave that emotion in our living room without supervision. We, we recognize sadness. Hello, sadness, I see that you're there. I'm here for you. Hello, my fear, I see you. Because what often happens is when a painful emotion arises in our mind, it's like Donald said last night, we go so quickly um, because we don't recognize that it's there, suddenly we're already reacting to it. We're saying the thing, we're doing the thing that we later regret. But mindfulness is what helps us to break that link between the pleasant or unpleasant and then the craving, the grasping, the doing something out of that pleasant or unpleasant in an automatic state. So if we can catch the emotion when it arises, we won't be victim to it. We have a way forward where we can actually work with it. So the second thing that mindfulness does, the second thing that we do once we've recognized that a painful emotion is there is to accept it. Also like in RAIN, A for accepting. We allow it. And metta, compassion, they help create this spaciousness in our hearts to accept what's arising. So, so often we just want the difficult things to go away. We don't want to have to admit that we feel angry or that we feel jealous or that, we, um, that we're feeling despair. We just want those things to go away. But mindfulness helps us to um, allow that this is what's in the mind. We don't have to deny. We don't have to be ashamed. We just let it be here. We can accept it. We give it space. Ah, here you are, my fear, my shyness, my sadness. It's okay that you're there. So this attention immediately releases when we accept the emotion. I bet you if you ask your strong emotions, what do you need when they come up? with a real tender tenderness, so often they just want to be accepted. They don't want to be pushed away. There's something that they have to teach us. There's something important that they're bringing. And we won't, we won't learn that if we don't accept them first. So the third step is embracing. So we accept that the painful emotion has arisen in the mind, and then we embrace. We, we don't need to see our painful emotions as being like monsters that we have to, um, you know, throw into the closet and lock them away. 
in fact, we can see our painful emotions as being like a crying child that needs our care, that needs our tenderness. So we embrace. So in this diagram, we see mindfulness is actually, if this is the one fist is the strong emotion and mindfulness is my other hand, mindfulness is gently coming toward that painful emotion and it's saying, it's okay, I got you. I'm here for you. I'm going to hold you and take good care of you. I'm not going to suppress you. I'm also not going to let you take over um, my life, take over the living room. But I'm going to hold you. And what does a crying baby want more than to be embraced? So as soon as we begin to embrace our strong emotion, it begins to oh, just release its tension, its it's resistance. It's, oh, thank you. I just want to be held. I want to be understood. So once we've embraced, the fourth step is that we can look deeply into our emotion. That's similar to investigate in RAIN. As our emotion begins to settle down, because we're no longer trying to suppress it, so it doesn't need to resist back, we can begin to see what's underneath it. So we look deeply into our anger and we may realize this isn't actually about this other person. This is about me, something I experienced long ago that I'm projecting onto them. Or we may see, ah, I, I understand that this fear that I have, it's actually from my parents that they had this fear and now I have it also. So compassion Holding this emotion with compassion is what helps us to look deeply and receive the deeper wisdom of what this emotion has to teach us. And so finally, the uh, last step is something that we don't actually do, but it just comes out of looking deeply, of investigating our emotion. The last thing is that insight arises and transformation that when we're mindful with our emotions, they shift, they become less triggering. They support us in our cultivation of, of compassion. Um, so if you see that seed of the original strong emotion, every time we recognize it, accept it, embrace it, look deeply into it, and understand it a little bit more, it gets smaller at the root. And so the next time something difficult happens that would normally trigger that emotion, it doesn't come up as quickly, it's not as intense, and it doesn't last as long. Because we've, we've been massaging it through this practice of holding it with our awareness. So we can, the quality of our life has a lot to do with the size of the seeds of suffering in our store consciousness and the size of the seeds of wholesome qualities in our store consciousness. And we can affect the size of these seeds with our practice. So it's the same thing if we don't do this practice. If, if every time anger arises and we vent and express our anger in ways that are that don't actually take care of the anger, but that, you know, magnify it, then 
the seed of anger is actually getting bigger in the root of our consciousness. We're feeding our anger. If we yell, if we write a nasty email, if we act out in some way physically. And then the next time something happens, our anger arises faster, it's more intense, and it lasts longer. So we can directly affect these seeds in the store of our mind with this five-step process of, of being there as soon as it arises and having a very wise, loving, compassionate practice, which is a middle way between, on the one side, suppressing or venting, which neither of them really solves the situation. One side is venting, and the other side is suppressing. Neither of them really lead to relief. But a middle way is to recognize, be with, embrace, love the emotion by holding it with care and doing this process of calming it and looking to understand what is really there, what's really underneath. So thank you so much, uh, Onyx. You can uh, stop the slide. So that's what I wanted to share about how we can um, work compassionately with our strong emotions. And now I'll move on to talk about mudita, which is um, translated as appreciative joy. Um, but Thich Nhat Hanh shares that it's, it's not just appreciating the joy of others, but it's also wishing it for ourselves. He says, if our love doesn't bring joy to both ourselves and our beloved one, it's not true love. So he feels like it's a little limiting to translate it only as appreciative joy, like only as appreciating others' joy, because that discriminates between us and others. And that a deeper definition of joy is full of satisfaction and peace, that we rejoice not just when others are happy, but we also rejoice in our own well-being. So how can we experience joy for another if we don't experience it for ourselves? He says joy is for everyone. So again, I'll share about ways we can practice joy for ourselves and also um, in relation to others. Gratitude is a very immediate way to nourish joy in ourselves and it's uh, a powerful practice to every day be aware of what we're grateful for. It's in the handout also that Donald has prepared as a mudita practice. So to get us into this space, I would invite us all to reflect and put in the chat, what's one thing that you are grateful for in this moment? And I'll read a few out my practice. Sunlight. 
a comfortable studio space to do this retreat in warmth, this retreat, uh, rain falling on the flowers, the spring, rain, my loving family, good health, tranquil surroundings, mastering crochet, being here today, the days getting longer, spaciousness, food and shelter, Hazel the cat. I couldn't read all of them um, coming in faster than I could read. My old snuggly dog, my beloved partner, cookies. <laughs> Lovely. So just notice as you wrote, as you got in touch with your gratitude and read other people's gratitudes, just notice if there's a difference in your body in doing that. There's a difference in your mind state as you turn your attention towards gratitude. I'm going to put you on gallery view. You want to just raise your hand if you notice that there was some kind of improvement in your state of mind or feeling in the body. Yeah, a number of hands raising. Yeah. So it's a pretty immediate shift um, that can happen. Uh, I've had people say, the room feels brighter. <laughs> like the actual sense of the space changes when we're in a room together when we practice gratitude. So there are five, uh, there's a list I found very helpful of five things that are scientifically researched that if we do them every day, they grow our joy. And I'll put them in the chat. So one is to meditate or pray, um, depending on what you know, what, what practice you have. Yeah, what religion you are in. So whatever word works for you. So some kind of contemplative practice is. It's been researched to shift the mind towards greater joy and happiness, especially if we do it every day. Another thing is to exercise, that that has a real effect on our, on our state of well-being. Another is to be aware of three things we're grateful for. There's a lot of research on gratitude and how when people write down even three things they're grateful for, even just once a week, over eight weeks, the, the group doing gratitude has been found to have, they have better sleep, um, better physical health, less stress, lower blood pressure. They also have psychological benefits like feeling more satisfaction in their work and getting along better with the people in their homes, um, feeling more self-confidence. So even just once a week, it has quite a profound effect. Um, and then the fourth one is a random act of kindness. So an act that you do or a conscious act of kindness is another way I've heard it described. 
where you per perform an act that you're not expecting something in return. You're just doing something. It could be sending a, a note of appreciation to someone or um, you know, writing to some business or company that offers you a service and just thanking them. And then the final one on the list is to journal a happy moment. So at the end of the day, you think about what was one thing that happened that was good that day that you appreciated and then you journal about it. So when you do that, you actually relive that moment. You, when, when you think about the seeds in store consciousness, that seed of happiness or that seed of gratitude that came up during the day, it may be back in your store consciousness asleep at the end of the day. When you journal about a happy moment, you bring it up into mind consciousness again, and you're giving it food when you do that. You're making that seed of appreciation, of well-being, of gratitude bigger in your store consciousness. So that the next day, your mind is more likely to see things that you can feel grateful for. So these things are in our life all the time, but we often pay attention to things, you know, that aren't going well. And we forget there's a lot of things that are going well. So journaling a happy moment is remembering there are a lot of things going well, and there have been some things that went well today. And so we're like bringing that up again to chew on it and to give it more food, to give that, to make that stronger in us. Um, so, so about the, um, random act of kindness, there's some interesting research on this, that when we perform a kind act to someone, for someone else, it releases serotonin, which is the feel-good hormone, in the person who is receiving our act of kindness, it releases serotonin in us for doing the kind act, and anyone who watches the kind act or hears about it also gets a serotonin release in their body. Isn't that amazing? Like, that's how powerful one act of kindness can be. It can make us feel good, the person who receives it feel good, and anyone who hears about it gets a boost of well-being in their system, actually chemically, in their brain, in their blood. So these things are, are no small thing, these five things. So I was leading um, two retreats over two consecutive weekends in Berlin some years ago. One was for young adults, and then the next one was for artists. And there was a young man who came for both from another country, and he had just broken up with his partner, and was in quite a deep state of despair. And I shared about these five happinesses on that first weekend for young adults. And he started practicing them every day. He said, okay, these are supposed to help. I'm going to do them. And he started doing them every single day, each one. And in the following weekend for artists, he reported, he said, he reported this to the whole group. He said, you know, I've been doing these and... I feel so much better. I'm at like probably one of the lowest points in my life after this relationship breaking up. But even though that pain is still there in me, I feel more and more centered. I feel better and better about who I am. 
in just one week of doing these every day. So sometimes we think that our suffering has to disappear in order for us to touch joy and happiness, but that's actually not the case. Our suffering can be there and we can still be in touch with the joy and the goodness in our life. So we can water the seeds of of happiness, of joy in ourselves and others every day. That is possible. We all have the seeds of well-being, of kindness, of friendliness, of positivity in us, and we can nourish them. We can consciously bring them up every day. So you could make a list of things that you know that bring up your wholesome seeds. You could post it where you'll see it every day and make a point to do one of them each day, at least one. Or just use this five, list of five, five, I call them the five happinesses, the five joys. That's also fine. So, um, so I love to teach about this, mind and store consciousness. I, when I lived in Germany as a nun, we would do retreats for teachers, week-long retreats for educators. And one teacher came and learned about this mind and store consciousness teaching. And she took it back to her six-year-old class, first graders in Germany. And she had them keep a mindfulness journal. And they drew the diagram and they chose each week which wholesome seed they were going to water in themselves very consciously for that week. And then they had to draw a flower coming out of that seed. And in the petals of the flower, they had to keep track of what was the effect of watering the wholesome seed. So we have one other uh, slide that Onyx will pull up. This is a drawing of one of these children that this teacher sent me. Um, it's in German. Uh, so this student decided, this six-year-old decided they wanted to water the seed of helfen is helping and glücklich is happy. So that was, they, you can see they have a little watering can, so cute, that they're going to water that seed of helping and happiness. And then they drew the, the petals of the flower. And in the petals, they wrote the word Frieden, uh, joy, Freude, uh, no, Frieden, peace, Freude, joy. And I can't make out quite the other one that they wrote. But they were observing that when they watered their seed of being helpful, of happiness, that they felt joy, that they felt peace. Very sweet. <laughs> Thank you, Onyx, for sharing that. So, so she, she, the kids got this. They were, they were from a town, a small town, a kind of rural area. Everyone had parents that were, you know, had gardens or worked on farms. They all understood very well that when you water a certain seed, it will grow. And so she had that language with them. And so uh, if the, a child was doing something in class that wasn't, you know, like they were 
being, you know, they were upset and she might come to them and say, so what seed are you watering right now? And they might say, I'm watering my anger. So she, she would ask, well, how does that make you feel? And you'd say, I'm not very good. So that was a, a way of uh, immediately understanding cause and effect. You know? And so one day a student was helping another child, and she asked that uh, boy, what seed are you watering right now? And the boy said, oh, I'm watering my seed of helpfulness. And she said, how does that make you feel? And he said, happy. And then she noticed he was helping people the rest of the day, which, which hadn't been his strong point, she noted. <laughs> so this is how we can nourish joy in ourselves. But we can also nourish joy uh, in each other, in others. So uh, Thai Thich Nhat Hanh has shared um, that we can live our lives in such a way that we create a beautiful past. We can live deeply our daily lives in such a way that we create a beautiful past. We have something really lovely to look back on when we, when we think about our lives. So once I was on a teaching trip to South Africa and Botswana, we were leading a couple days of mindfulness retreats, two sisters, two brothers. One of the brothers was a um, Vietnamese-Canadian brother, and in our monastic community, a lot of Vietnamese brothers and sisters, um, they had a beautiful culture of the art of, of tea, of enjoying green tea from China or Vietnam, with little clay pots, and very, you know, fragile, and then you drink out of these little glass glass cups. So we were having a layover in Johannesburg on our way to Botswana, and um, we needed to meet to begin to plan our first events. So before we started the meeting, this Vietnamese-Canadian brother, he wanted to prepare tea for all of us, so he pulled out his little clay teapot and four glasses and a thermos of boiling water. And it's a, it's a little ritual. You have to wash the tea, then you have to warm up the glasses so they're not cold, and then you pour the boiling water over the tea leaves. You, um, you steep it, and then you pour it. So he did this for us in a very um, beautiful way, and it just made us all kind of pause and we just savored the tea, we savored the moment. We were looking at each other, smiling, appreciating, slowing down. And then we had a very nice meeting. Just set, set the stage for something uh, a little more, more special, more held to happen. But I do remember thinking as soon as I saw him pull all that, that stuff out of his bag, I thought, how impractical to bring such breakable stuff on a trip. But then, then I noticed what an effect it had on slowing us all down and how it made our meeting so much easier. I was like, oh, okay, this is really, <laughs> really wise. So the whole trip, we were on this trip for two weeks, the whole trip was like that. Every time we'd have a meeting to plan our next event, he would produce the tea 
pot and the tea and the teacups and boiled thermos of boiled water and pour. And it would just be this lovely ritual that we really enjoyed. We would smell the tea. We would drink it in silence for a couple minutes, just appreciating each other, appreciating the moment. So at the end of our time there, we had one lazy day where we got to have a fun day. And our hosts took us on this walk through this kind of forested area where we got to swim. There was a waterfall coming into a pond. And so we, we decided to swim across the pond and to walk up the, the boulders really quite high to the top of this waterfall. So as we were swimming across the pond, I looked over at him. He had his bag, his monastic bag on his head, and he was swimming with just one hand. And I was like, what's he doing? Why is he swimming like that? Well, we hiked all the way up to the top, about 100 meters up high, where the waterfall started. And out comes the teapot (laughs) and the glasses and the thermos, and he fixes us hot green tea on top of this waterfall. And it was just such a splendorous moment, splendid and wondrous. Um, I just felt like royalty. I was like, wow, he's taking such care to, to treat us in this most unexpected place. And I've never forgotten that. And when I tell it, I feel it all over again, just the joy of that moment. And so for me, that's always what I think about when I think of how we can live in such a way that we create a beautiful past. It's like we each have these possibilities in our daily life to create moments that are very memorable and very wonderful for other people. So. So this practice that we're going to be doing uh, in our formal meditation of cultivating joy for, for others is we're going to choose someone who it's easy to feel joy toward, someone who's doing well and who you feel happy about that they're doing well. And, and then we're going to direct phrases to celebrate their their success. So some of the phrases we can use are, I rejoice in your goodness, in your success, in your well-being. Or may your goodness, may your well-being continue without ceasing. May it just keep going and going. Or may your success and happiness grow and grow without limit. And so, and, and Donald has other phrases in the handout. Um, we'll go over them tomorrow in more detail too. May your happiness increase. May they never wane, your happiness and good fortune. I appreciate the blessings in your life. I'm happy that you're happy. May you never part from the sublime bliss free from suffering. And 
And so we'll, we'll begin with what we call the happy friend, the, the person we like who's also in a good state. And then we'll wish the same wishes for the benefactor, for the dear friend, for the neutral person. And that's the classical, is to also include the difficult person and all beings. And in this, in this sequence, we don't do ourself. Um, it's not included in the traditional sequence, but the gratitude practice, reflecting on what's good in our life, that's another possible form of cultivating joy for ourselves. So appreciative joy, really delighting in other people's success, is not always easy. As you might know, because jealousy is real, right? That can, that can really strike us. And I just want to point out that, like, this four sequence of the Brahma Viharas, we're also moving from easier to harder. So it's easier to think, you know, to wish someone well, in general, like, make, I want you to be happy. Some of you have said it's easier to feel compassion than metta, but the, the thought is that it's it's easier to say, oh, I want you to be happy, than it is to say, oh, I, I see that you're in pain and I don't want you to suffer. So that's a little harder. That's a little deeper, kind of a little, a different kind of practice. And then to wish someone joy when they're doing well, that's an even... So even more challenging practice to say, you know, sometimes we, we feel when other people are experiencing good fortune, we, we feel bad because we're not experiencing that. Or we want that for ourselves. So there's some happiness research that shows that when we say we earn $50,000 a year, if we live in a neighborhood where people are wealthier than us, we're unhappy. But if we are earning $50,000 a year, but we live in an area where people are less wealthy than us, we're happy. So it's not the amount that brings us happiness. It's how we compare to other people. It's how we see ourselves in relation to others. And this can be endless. I'm sure you, you have some experience with this. We all do. This sense of trying to get what other people have or, you know, reach this, this point. But then someone else reaches that point. So now this point isn't, can't make us happy anymore, right? So this this sense of never having enough, never getting enough, always needing more, and then comparing ourselves to others. This lovely phrase, compare, despair. And as soon as we compare ourselves, we fall into despair. And just so that hope none of you feel bad for comparing yourselves to anyone else, it's said that the last thing that is let go of before becoming enlightened, once you've let go of so many things, 
the last thing to let go of is the comparing mind. That that stays with you even through many stages of enlightenment before the final enlightenment. You're still comparing yourself to other people. So don't feel bad. It's so deeply embedded. And that's even, you know, a very profound teaching is that of the three complexes, we have three ways we can have a complex about ourselves. We can think we're inferior to others. We can think we're superior to others. And even thinking we're equal to others is a complex, is a way we can suffer because we're still attached to our sense of us being separate from others and we're comparing. Equality is saying, well, I'm about like they are. So we're still comparing, we're still caught. And we need to transcend all of the three complexes. And mudita, practicing joy for ourselves, relishing the joy of others, helps us with this comparing mind. It helps to break its hold on us. So mudita helps us to keep our hearts open when others have good fortune, to celebrate it rather than think that we're losing out because they have something we don't have, that they got something we should have gotten. Maybe we deserve it more than they do. That can sometimes be the, the story. So it helps us with jealousy and envy. When we rejoice in others' joy, we practice the truth of non-self, and see that when others do good things, it's actually a boon. It's a benefit to us, too. There's a wonderful meditation that Thupten Chodron, a Tibetan teacher and nun, teaches uh, for working with jealousy. It's actually on Insight Timer. I've used it. It's very helpful. Yes, I get jealous. <laughs> And so you meditate on the goodness of what the person has that you want. So you bring to mind what it is that they are doing that you're jealous of. And you think about how it's beneficial to them, how it's bringing them happiness, but also how it's beneficial to other people, to those who love them, to those who are or will be helped by this situation of, of the goodness that's come into their lives. And you let yourself feel the goodness of, of the, the situation they're in, the benefit that's happening to them and to others. And then she guides you also to reflect on the downsides of the good fortune in this person's life, how they also have stress or difficulties that might be related to this good fortune. And then there's just the general difficulties that this person might have, just that shared humanity, that not everything is going well in their life. So that can open the heart, can soften the heart to feel kindness, compassion for their difficulties, even in the midst of their success. Because when we get jealous or envious, our mind can narrow and just see in a very black and white way that if they're doing well, they must not have any suffering. So that cuts, cuts off the ability to connect to them, to have compassion, to have that sense of shared humanity with them. But if we soften our hearts through this practice of appreciating their joy, um, 
we can look more deeply and we can see, of course, they also have difficulties. That they're just like us, another human being. And this can help us feel more connected to them and can kind of melt that blockage in us that keeps us feeling separate from them. So the last practice I'll share about that's related to this joy and others' joy is just a beautiful practice from the Tibetan tradition of rejoicing in others' um, wholesome actions, rejoicing in others' uh, goodness. And it's kind of something that that, um, I've heard teachers say that like at the end of the day, if if nothing else, you can always rejoice in others' wholesome actions. No matter what has happened for you that day, you can always do that. And it's a way of actually sharing in the merit of that good deed, that wholesome action. It's somehow like we get to um, share in it. We get to share in its good energy by rejoicing in it. So, So we get to actually become like a stealth benefactor of that person and their good deeds. We we become a supporter, even just in the energetic realm. So so the benefits of, of that wholesome act become part of our energy field. We we are somehow part of that act. So it's its own kind of meditation that we can do. Um, any time of the day, but certainly it could be at the end of the day where you just visualize any beings that you're aware of, people, uh, maybe in helping professions or people that you know, um, people that you admire, maybe that you don't know, that you've only heard of, public figures who you you visualize the the good things that they have done this day, the ways they've been helpful to others or the ways they've created joy or created beauty, created inspiration, the way they've relieved suffering. Maybe veterinarians helping animals or social workers helping the elderly or serving children or activists caring for natural places, rivers or oceans or species that are endangered. And you rejoice in that wholesome action. You say inside of yourself, yay! So glad they're out there doing what they're doing. This is um, increasing goodness in the planet, on the planet. And so it's a real generosity of heart to say, they're out there doing that, and I can, I can lean my shoulder in to support that work just by um, relishing, celebrating, honoring their good good deed, their good works. So that's a deep practice of appreciative joy. So um, these are some 
some ways we can practice with mudita. Thank you for your listening. So we'll just take a couple breaths to settle ourselves. And if there's a question or a comment, we have just a few minutes if anyone has something you'd like to bring. Thanks for the hearts. Rob, you have your hand raised. Go ahead. There we go. Thank you. Um, something that you kind of said towards the end of the talk was uh, the three ways that we can be trapped. Uh, we can be trapped in uh, kind of an illusion of inferiority, of superiority, or even uh, equality. And uh, this is a, this is a tricky question. I think you could probably have a whole retreat about uh, as uh, as we talked about occupational hazards, the occupational hazard of uh, emptiness or transcending those illusions. But in a society where there's so much suffering that's caused by inequality, um, whether that's uh, of of race or uh, gender, maliciously or just imbued in the structure of society. Um, and people are conditioned that way, right? Uh, or even with class or wealth. How do you balance kind of that transcendent perception that, that we can experience on the cushion or in kind of maybe our most beautiful moments of penetrating through that illusion and seeing through it, but then also participating in a society where it very much matters whether people are equal or not, right? Of the suffering that they have. And um, I guess just wrap up that question by saying, like, what are, what are some skillful ways to, to balance that and um, not fall into the trap of just being okay with everything and allowing the world to fall apart, but also not getting so sucked into it that we become part of the problem? Yeah. Right? Striking that balance. Yeah. Well, thank you. Such a deep question. Um, <clears throat> I think that it's, it is really important to um, work on the level of, of the kind of everyday historical dimension where real deep suffering is caused because um, people are discriminated against. They aren't treated in... Um, you know, in ways that really deeply value the fullness of who they are, right? There are in-groups, in out-groups, people we treat as those we care for and those who are in the out-groups we don't care for. And that creates tremendous suffering, as you're saying. And... Um,
there's, uh, I think this teaching of the three complexes is um, not necessarily applicable in, um, it's a kind of, uh, it's dealing with a kind of suffering that's um, a little bit in a different realm. So, um, so you have this absolute dimension, the, the, the ultimate dimension where it is really, um, it is really the case that our, that we are much more than the ways we identify within the historical dimension, right? And it's very important not to skip over the historical dimension in our wish to get to so quickly to the absolute <laughs> ultimate dimension. And so, um, you know, the fact that people discriminate against each other is being caught in these three complexes of superiority, inferiority, you know. And equality is like so attached to who I am and who you are that I can't see that we're actually, you know, much more than me here and you there that I can weigh and, and get the same measurement out of both of us, right? And so, uh, I think that the teaching of the two truths of the historical dimension and the ultimate dimension existing simultaneously is, is helpful and that you actually only get to the ultimate dimension by deeply, deeply touching the historical dimension. So, yes, we want to transcend the three complexes, but to do that, we actually need to address the suffering that the three complexes bring about. So that means we can't say, well, there's no self, so it doesn't matter that uh, you don't get to go to college and this person does. It does matter. We need to address that. But we still don't get caught in an idea that you're this thing and I'm this thing. But on the historical dimension, we really need to see there is suffering being caused. How can we not contribute to that suffering? At the same time that we know that the ultimate dimension is also real. And that we are beyond these separate selves that compare ourselves to each other constantly. I don't know if that got to your question, but thank you. So let's uh, end here and just take a moment to think about, visualize how we want to bring our practice of metta, of compassion, of medita, joy, into the next period of our practice day.
Okay, everyone. See you at chanting in about 25 minutes if you're coming to that. Otherwise, see you tomorrow. Bye.